This is the Stark Truth, hosted by Robert Stark. Brought to you by StarkTruthRadio.com. Robert Stark is an American journalist and political commentator. You can listen to his podcast at www.StarkTruthRadio.com. Stark here. Uh, I'm joined here with uh, James O'Mara. We're going to be discussing his book, Mysticism After Modernism, Crowley, Evola, Neville, Watts, Colin Wilson, and Other Populist Gurus by Manticore. It's published by Manticore Press. Uh, James O'Mara, great speaking with you. It's uh, been quite some time. Yeah, great to to hear from you, uh, Robert. Great to talk to you again. Uh, Great to be here. So I guess to give some background information uh, about the book, uh, you have an interest in mysticism and where mysticism and the occult intersects with uh, your other guy, cultural and political interests. Were you personally interested in mysticism and the occult as far as it being effective, or is it more just an a more just like an academic look at mysticism and its influence on culture? Um. Well, I'm certainly only interested in it so far as, well, I'm interested in both things, but uh, I would probably be less interested if I didn't think it had some efficacy. <clears throat> so I'm interested in, uh, I'm interested in people who are interested in being effective. Uh, so uh, well, uh, particularly in the modern age and uh, <clears throat> the idea of mysticism after modernism, uh, essentially being that uh, all the, the, uh, Essays in the book are sort of united by the theme of uh, that these are people who have uh, uh, sort of broken with uh, tradition or orthodoxy and so on, and are uh, have a more I want to say don't want to say necessarily scientific interest. They're not scientists necessarily, but they have a more practical interest in um, magic and mysticism. Magic, really. Uh, in uh, in practical terms, you know, does it in fact work? Uh, but uh, I might not be uh, in that case uh, if I didn't think that uh, magic and mysticism had. Uh, but I did come at it from a sort of uh, uh, well, back in the day it was called the alt right uh, kind of perspective uh, because uh, I guess I really got interested in it in in that angle of it uh, with uh, with Ebola. Um, I uh, when I was a a teenager, I was listening to Alan Watts, and uh, that was the origin of my interest in these kinds of areas. Um, and uh, Watts got me interested in a uh, contemporary guru uh, named, uh, who at that time was named Da Free John. Uh, he went through a number of name changes, uh, ultimately becoming Adi Da, uh, and died a few years ago uh, out in California. Um, and uh, the uh, I was also eventually became interested in uh, traditionalism and uh, on traditionalism, I eventually discovered Avila and uh, was interested 
particularly interested in him because he seemed to have a, a sort of practical uh, attitude. He was not uh, sort of like saying, you know, oh, there are all these wonderful traditions which we've lost contact with and we'll never uh, get back to because it's the Kali Yuga and we can just, uh, just have to wait for everything to collapse and then maybe someday something will happen. And by the way, there's no such thing as reincarnation, uh, says Gainon, so uh, you're just going to be dead anyway. Uh, <clears throat> that, that wasn't a very... Uh, inspiring uh, viewpoint, but uh, Avila um, was interested in uh, making changes in the real world, which is one reason why he was interested in people like Crowley. The thinkers in the book listed are William Burroughs, Alistair Crowley, Colin Wilson, Alan Watts, Neville Goddard, and Julia Savilla. And I'm sure there's, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of other ones who also are, are relevant to this. But those are the main, Those are the main ones. And I think well, yeah, but there is this kind of actually. I think there is like a stereotype of like new the new age movement, uh, and and both like the hippie counterculture mm-hmm. kind of like being more being more of the left, and that's even like you know, like there are points like even associations like with with Crowley and how people on the right like the way it's treated like it's either the part of the hippie counterculture or liberal new age types. Or the or the view is more that like the more kind of the the more kind of Alex Jonesy side of the right associates it with kind of like the evil of like our current of like the current kind of liberal elites like that's how a lot of mm-hmm. right wing populists are dismissive of it and like there's actually like that's not that's not necessarily true it's very it's very like inter- there's a lot of nuance and interesting angles and then even further back like I think I was listening to a show on on Jeffrey Mishlove about some of the, the transcendentalists of the 19th century and how they actually did have, and they actually did have some influence on like things like women's suffrage and the abolitionist movements, which you would associate more with the left, but that your focus is more on like the 20th century, but like there are thinkers like Crowley are much more interesting and, and complex. And then even a lot of the beatniks writers, I think like bros is probably the one would have things about them that are not conventionally you'd think of as like liberal but there is so much like crossover crossover appeal and nuance so you can take someone like, like jeffrey michelev show he's probably more like of the 60s counterculture pro- probably like more of the left of a universalist but then he's had on like people like jason reza Giorgiani, and there's a lot of like crossover and and then you look at like Evola, like Evola out of the thinkers, he's Evola is probably the most traditionalist and of the right of these thinkers, but like a lot of them, maybe not so much, but like overall, how much would you say that like mysticism is fundamentally like at odds with modernity and liberalism, like despite a lot of the sixties counterculture and the new age movement that came after that? Well, the thing that, uh, as I was saying before, one thing that links uh, the various people I talked about in the book is uh, their interest in uh, practical mysticism. Uh, and uh, an aspect of that that maybe <clears throat> illuminates this uh, this crossover, as you were talking about, is that uh, uh, the left, <clears throat> I guess, likes to talk about changing the world, and progress and things like that, but tends to be tied to mater- uh, materialist uh, viewpoint. And uh, on the other hand, people who have a more spiritual viewpoint, uh, as you say, tend to, to be fall into the sort of hippy-dippy, uh, new agey uh, sort of area. And uh, the people I look at in uh, in this book, uh, 
sort of fall between those uh, those stools because they're they're very interested in in magic as uh, Crowley defined it as uh, changing the world in accordance with will, which of course sounds like it would be very much like uh, you know progressive liberalism and tikkun uh, olam uh, among the Kabbalists and uh, so on. Um, but uh, the the modern left is is a very materialistic, anti-religious, anti-spiritual uh, sort of entity, and uh, these people are very much uh, spiritualists. Uh, <clears throat> one person I don't talk about in the book, although I talk about Neville Goddard, who's uh, I think the greatest figure of New Thought. But uh, one of the early New Thought writers of the turn of the century, William Wallace, um, actually ran for uh, for president a couple of times on the Socialist Party ticket. Uh, his and his socialism was based on new thought that um, uh, you know he thought that the uh, the capitalists and the social Darwinists that were popular at the time uh, were working from the assumption that uh, that everything was fixed. There was only a small amount of stuff, and people had to compete for it. And uh, his from his new thought or idealist point of view, uh, this was nonsense. You just had to. Uh, Use the power of the imagination to create what you want. Um, so he. So in a sense, social, like, almost social, like alchemy. Almost like alchemy, yeah. So uh, precisely because he wasn't a materialist and was an idealist and thought that you could use the mind to uh, bring things into existence, as Crowley did as well, uh, that uh, made him a socialist or at least a non-capitalist. Um, and uh, Abela, you know. You know, uh, people on the left don't want to talk about Abela because uh, they think he's a Nazi and so on. And, and traditionalists don't want to talk about Abela because uh, precisely because he wants to do things in the world. You know, the, the traditionalists love uh, people like Gainon who say, uh, you know, you can't do anything. There's these cosmic cycles. We're in the Kali Yuga. You just have to sit back and wait. Uh, Heidegger, by the way, is exactly the same. Like there, there's a legitimate argument that we have gone through these like historical cycles, but and, and then the critique of liberalism as just being this upward progression towards progress. But I find that like very demoralizing about the right that they say like we just have to kind of accept decay and go for these cycles and not <clears throat> like dream big. I really actually actually really detest that. <laughs> well, you see, it, and it, it, once you start looking for that, you can see it all all over the place. For instance, the uh, the QAnon business. Is, well, they're almost kind of QAnon's almost like kind of I think been described as like Gnostic in a sense. Well, but the but you see, but the the mentality is don't do anything, stay with the plan, right. believe the plan. Everything's planned out. It's already happened behind the scenes. Just wait for Trump to strike. <laughs> it's all yeah. an, it's all an <laughs> illusion. He's only pretending to go to jail. That's all part of the plan. You see, uh, you know the message is always don't do anything. And uh, that's, that's kind of a Gnostic thing, but uh, uh, it's also kind of Gnostic to believe that uh, you can actually change things, that you have, have access to, uh, to higher dimensions uh, and can, uh, can use those to work change in the real world. Uh, and that's, uh, that's the thing that's, that's interesting about people that, uh, that I study in the book. A good one to start with is like I have them kind of listed out in order. Like we'll start yeah. with Alan Watts. <laughs> And yeah, like I've actually have been listening to a lot of Alan Watts's speeches on YouTube, these seminars he gave. And it's interesting is it is again, it kind of goes to that theme as open to interpretation. So many times he does seem like more kind of 
other liberal universalists or hippies at hippie at time because it's very much very much influenced by buddhism like the stereotype a stereotype of buddhism and again like there's a lot of there's a lot of complexity there like there's right wing people on the right who kind of critique buddhism as being maybe demoralizing as far as like letting go of all attachments and connections but it's, I think it's a lot. There's a lot more nuance than that than that simplistic view. But Watts does seem like I get the impression he talks about letting go of attachments, and he's been kind of critical. He's sort of sort of a critical of tribalism. You do get the impression that mm-hmm. he does believe in in all humanity being kind of in, interconnected. And then, but then there are different angles to him because I was listening to a, uh, Brian Scott's YouTube channel. It's called you are it. It's an Alan Watts speech, like this kind of spiritual elitism where Watts talks about like, he talks about like the masses who are conformist and don't, and lack like spiritual curiosity or creativity. Like they're kind of like views them as like lesser as a sort mm-hmm. of like spirit, almost like a spiritual kind of Nietzschean, uh, Nietzschean, and then also he gives an example where you're, where he's talking to a young woman, and he says like he doesn't care about her credentials because like her beauty is like that's something that's like genetic or inborn, and like I was listening to that, that sounded like something almost like stereotypically you'd hear more on the right today, and right. some things that he says like there's this figure on the on the online right like Bap or Bronze Age pervert a lot of similar similarities where Watts talks a lot about like tapping into that, like vitality. So he was heavily influenced. Watts was heavily influenced by Buddhism, but was he also influenced by, I think he may have been influenced by Jung, possibly even Evola. But what do you, what do you think about like specifically about Alan Watts that goes beyond that stereotype of him just being kind of a hippie? Cause there, there's so (laughs) many different like unique angles to him. Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. There are many many angles uh, to him. Uh, before I forget about, it, you mentioned Nietzsche, and that which is interesting because uh, Watts uh, never attended uh, university in uh, in England. He was uh, because he was trying to get a scholarship to Cambridge, and uh, he failed uh, the test. Uh, he says in his autobiography because he wrote in his essay on uh, courage in the spirit of Nietzsche. Uh, whom he had just read, uh, so actually it was uh, it was the influence of Nietzsche that uh, that kept him out of uh, the university. Uh, so uh, uh, there's that, but there's there are many things that uh, angles, as you say, that uh, that make Watts uh, more of a uh, man of the right than uh, than you would think. You would ordinarily think, especially in his later years, you think of him as the, the hippie philosopher. Um, one of the essays uh, in my book is an analysis of his uh, book, uh, Behold the Spirit, which he wrote in the 40s when he was uh, an Episcopal priest. And uh, it's, a, it's a Spenglerian book. In fact, he, he, he assumes Spengler's uh, uh, morphology of uh, the, the way uh, civilizations develop, and he applies it to uh, religion. Uh, he differs from Spengler because he's an optimist. He, he, he thinks that the, uh, what Spengler calls the second religiosity is actually a rebirth of religion. Uh, so Spengler would probably be not amused, but uh, nevertheless, it's a, it's a Spenglerian book. 
also uh, Watts's uh, social philosophies, his economics and, and so on, is uh, basically a social credit. Oh, right. So there is, I actually found this article on this, on countercurrents, but like one big theme with Alan Watts is escaping, a lot of it is like kind of escaping the bullshit of society, like including like bullshit jobs theory, which is popular right. today, <laughs> Just but just like managerialism, like ar- arbitrary rules and like bullshit kind of like life uh, scripts that are keeping people kind of enslaved. That's a huge theme. And then I am looking at some other things. So on countercurrents, uh, I think it was Greg Johnson has an article on the spiritual materialism of Alan Watts. Mm-hmm. And it's about Alan Watts's book, Does It Matter About it, Spiritual Existence? And he kind of had an interesting view on aesthetics. And at one point he made it interesting is he contrasted like the French who were like, he viewed it as pure materialists. Well, Americans, like the American view towards aesthetics comes from this like weird, like Gnostic dualism between like the spiritual mm-hmm. and the material and that kind of explains the American obsession, the Americans, Americans valuing quantity over quality. Mm-hmm. And then there's this kind of assumption that Watts is not overtly political. But I think what you were you were going to reference was he has this essay, Wealth versus Money, and he does advocate something like social credit and social credit's not. I think it's not not obviously not like the Chinese social credit system, which is totally well, it's different, different yeah. but yeah. it's it's like. It's more like a, ver- a version of basic income that I think is actually probably superior to like what Andrew Yang is advocating from yeah, C.H. Yeah. Douglas. And he calls for restructuring society and replacing work and basic society, but with more of a value on both on both leisure and on aesthetics. Yeah, I don't I don't know enough about it to, uh, to make any intelligent comments, but uh, uh, given the nature of our audience or, or where we want to present Watts, it might be. I might suggest that it's it's kind of like national socialist uh, uh, economics, and uh, let that be the shorthand for it. So to give you some idea of what's uh, what's going on, in other words, you know, instead of <clears throat> you know from Watts's the way Watts presents it, he presents it in this this Buddhist New Age sort of way, saying uh, you know money is just an illusion and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's, uh, Hitler would have agreed, you know, that uh, you know national socialist economics uh, from uh, what was his name, Gottfried Feder. Uh, you know, the, 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 you know, rather than having uh, the central bank uh, print money and then loan it to the government at interest, uh, the government prints its own money backed by the productivity of the, of the workers. Um, but uh, without getting in, into the, uh, the weeds of all that, uh, yeah, Greg, Greg Johnson's article talks about this. And uh, uh, there's a, a, a Bosnian, I think, uh, or Serbian uh, sort of guru character that uh, Watts was hanging around with in London. I can't think of his, uh, what his name is, Mitrovic or something like that. You can find it in uh, Greg Johnson's article. Uh, so he, he was kind of a quasi-fascist figure, and uh, consequently Watts never actually directly refers to him in, in his essay. That was an essay for Playboy magazine, by the way, uh, on, on wealth. So he doesn't actually, you know, make his connections obvious. But if you read his autobiography, he, he mentions this figure. It's just to, to, to add a couple other things here. The uh, uh, he's he's uh, he's if you think of him as a prophet of free love and all that, if you look at his actual life, uh, he was he engaged in serial monogamy. In fact, he was really only married twice. Uh, there was a there's a second marriage that was just to get someone out of uh, Europe during World War II. Which oddly enough, Burroughs did the same thing. 
Um, but, uh, you know, Watts was married and then he, uh, he fell in love with somebody else. And so he, you know, did the good thing and, uh, divorced, divorced his first wife, married the second woman, uh, stayed married to her. Eventually he wound up with, uh, about 17 uh, children and grandchildren. Uh, and he worked to support them. So he's a very positive figure. If you want to talk about role models, he's a very positive figure for the right. He did more for the white race than uh, than most people on the right. Uh, you know, 17 children and grandchildren, worked to support them all. Uh, not really a, a hippie, <laughs> you know. Um, and uh, that's ultimately what killed him. It was overworked uh, that killed him to uh, to uh, do all these lectures and, and all across the country and so on. I think he was very active... Uh... In California, I think I think he lived in Marin County. Yeah, yeah. The uh, and uh, speaking of Marin County, I mean, uh, it's not. Uh, he's actually very much against. You talk about uh, the way he uh, talks about uh, uh, Buddhism and, and uh, uh, you know scripts and uh, liberating yourself from that and so on. He's not like a new age kind of guy. What I call a hot tub psychologist. Uh, in fact, he, in his autobiography, he's very uh, direct about that. He's, he, he mocks people, these, these guys. I think of them, he doesn't say this, but I think of them as like a fat, hairy, bald guy in a hot tub uh, saying, hey, come on, Alan, show us uh, your real self. Let down all your guard, uh, you know, the standard New Age crap. And uh, Watts says, uh, when people say that to me, I say, uh, I am me. I'm showing you what I am. You know, you're just not listening. So he doesn't buy that all that hot tub crap. Uh, so there's this kind of a, a anti-psychology uh, mentality uh, there. And uh, I might also uh, make, uh, mention one other thing. Uh, you know, you think about the, the hippies and uh, globalism, and one world, and love your enemy and all that. In uh, Behold the Spirit, uh, when he was an Episcopal priest, uh, he says that, um, that uh, love your enemy means love him as your enemy yeah i think i have actually heard that maybe i read it from you or heard that somewhere maybe that's really interesting beyond kind of like beyond the mysticism and just traditional christianity a lot of so much of it bible is misinterpreted or it is open to interpretation over the years and yeah, yeah i mean yeah. that's that's incredibly fascinating and i but think like an, another thinker who's misunderstood is i'm not sure how much you get into aldous huxley and i've read brave new world but it hasn't really been since high school it's a long been a long time but he's also misunderstood like there's one view that he's like the whistleblower on the globalist elites one uh one view that he's like part of the new world order illuminati or this like fabian socialist villain but then there's another view that actually he had some really interesting uh ideas that that are totally different than what most people assume with him. And the interesting is another thing is like Watts was actually friends with Alex Huxley. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you mentioned Huxley. I mean, I don't know very much about Huxley. I mean, I've read more than brave new world, but not, uh, not everything. Uh, I wrote a lot. Uh, but um, the uh, it's, it's interesting because uh, Neville, my, uh, my personal uh, hero in all this actually uh, talks about meeting Huxley. Uh, not to get ahead of ourselves if we're going to eventually talk about Neville, but you should know that Neville uh, was uh, an immigrant from uh, Barbados, uh, from a, a British uh, family there. You know, it's kind of, uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting uh, is, 
I was like researching my own like genealogy, and I I may have like have possibly have like a distant ancestor who was from Barbados but immigrated oh. to Maryland, like around Maryland in like seventeen twenty. Interesting. The uh, so he spoke, and this is part of his charisma as a as a lecturer. He was Neville was sort of the a, a kind of overlapped uh, with uh, Alan Watts. And uh, he he was also on the lecture trail, and uh, his his attractiveness, his part of his charisma on the lecture trail was that uh, he had this uh, lilting island accent. There actually are some audio recordings of oh, him there, speaking on YouTube. There are there are hundreds of audio recordings of, of Neville because, uh, as uh, uh, Mitch Horowitz uh, compares him to the Grateful Dead. Uh, because and Mitch he, Horowitz, uh, he's a New Thought scholar who yes. wrote the intro. To, he wrote the foreword to your book. Uh, he didn't write the foreword to my book, but uh, he wrote a very kind uh, blurb uh, for Amazon use. Um, and uh, uh, he's um, there's actually a couple of reviews of, of his book, of books of his in uh, in Mysticism After Modernism. Uh, the uh, uh, but uh, he compares him to, to the Grateful Dead because uh, Neville uh, didn't believe in copywriting his wisdom. So he would let people uh, tape his lectures. This was in the 40s and 50s and so on. So people would bring these giant real to real recorders and put them on stage and record his, his, his uh, lectures. So therefore, all this stuff is now available on the Internet. There's hundreds and hundreds. There's, there's like a book I have of 300 transcripts of, of his lectures. Um, it's kind of like also kind of like the uh, mystery science theater where they had that thing at the end of the episodes keep circulating the tapes. Um, so uh, we, we can get into that uh, later, but just to tie this up to Alice, Aldous Huxley, uh, he says he, he met Huxley uh, once and he tried to talk about Blake. Now, Blake is a big hero to, uh, to Neville and uh, much of his work uh, seems to stem from, from Blake. He's a very interesting interpretation of Blake's poetry uh, and uh, the role of the imagination and so on. And he tried to talk to, to Huxley and Huxley blew him off. You know, and uh, uh, Neville, Neville says, he didn't like my accent. He's one of these, uh, one of these English uh, people who think that uh, if you have an island accent, you're a moron. Or, you know, words to that effect. Uh, oh, right, how yeah. un- unfortunate did I could have enlightened him about the Blake, but he wouldn't listen. <laughs> and this gets back to what you were talking about um, before about spiritual elitism and all that. And Neville says very, very plainly, he doesn't believe in any elitism, but the spiritual. I mean, this is like a whole other tangent, but there's economic elitism, <laughs> cultural elitism, and kind of like, again, spiritual elitism. And that's, uh, yeah, I think I think Watts actually rejected he rejected the social and economic elitist, but I do think he was a spiritual elitist for sure. And yeah, you could just yeah. say there's yeah there's different angles on that. It could just be about like uh, just rejecting conformity, even though that's a bit too simplistic. But like Goddard is interesting. Neville Goddard, so his belief he was like an extensive biblical scholar, and he can like read. He basically memorized the entire Bible, which is remarkable. But his views were so different from traditional Christianity. He had believed that your imagination 
was God. So some Christians would view that as a blasphemy. But I think Neville actually would find biblical verses that vindicated his position. Or I, I think maybe something about our consciousness as God, something like that. So the this idea that you can shape reality and future via thoughts and yeah, there's so much, there's so much that's interesting about this because talking about that socialist, I do think like a lot of, there is also kind of an angle of like more libertarianism and like these like self-help gurus and cap pro capitalism. Like you have the prosperity gospel, like the, the preacher who's a Christian preacher who, in, who influenced Donald Trump, who I found about via uh, Gary Lackman's book on the occult. There was a Christian preacher who influenced Donald Trump, who was also influenced by Neville oh, Goddard. But I think even some influence on like uh, on like Oprah Winfrey and these like self help gurus from the nineties. Uh, the big one, obviously, I forgot. I can't think of his name off the top of my head. But all these big like self help gurus, like I, Neville, was like even though like he's not that well known, so many famous people were probably uh, influenced by him. Oh, yeah, yeah. The thing is, it's interesting, but overall. What I what I think is remarkable about Neville Goddard is that his ideas, like you talk about kind of like practical mysticism, they don't at all seem practical. I think they seem the idea that you can meditate and imagine like a million dollars just showing up showing <laughs> up in like a showing up in your doorstep, that sounds like totally grandiose, like the opposite of like the practical mysticism. Uh well he's practical in the sense that uh he's uh he's giving you a method. Uh, he's, he's boiling it all down into a method. It's very American, as, as I say. It's very, uh, pragmatic, uh, practical. Oh, yeah. Tony Robbins, like, oh, Trump, that Tony kind of Robbins, culture. Yeah. It's, it's very yeah. much individualistic, very American, very capitalistic, that kind of like self-help, <clears throat> new age guru, like that. I'm sure, like, someone like Tony Robbins, you can tell, well, is like, you know, very influenced by Neville Goddard. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, God, I can't think of his name, not Father Divine, but there was a black uh, guy in Harlem who was very famous, who was explicitly influenced by Neville Goddard. He would quote Neville. Uh, I can't think of his name, um, uh, but it'll come to me. Uh, but there was that guy, uh, a guy, uh, uh, Wayne Dyer, uh, is admits uh, being influenced by uh, by Neville Goddard uh, and, and just recommissioning stuff. But the point is, uh, and, uh, Mitch Horowitz has done, uh, some good work on this, uh, uh, that, uh, Neville has basically a three-step method. Uh, and getting back to the Grateful Dead thing and so on, uh, Mitch Horowitz says, uh, you know, with Neville, there's no cult to join. There's no membership fee. There's no, uh, books to buy. You can get all this stuff free on the internet. <laughs> there's no cost at all. And uh, Neville just says, try this method, go home and try it. If it doesn't work, uh, you haven't spent anything. I haven't taken any money from it. Uh, if it does work, uh, great. Write me a letter and tell me about it. And uh, I'll use it in my uh, lectures. Uh, it's three steps. And uh, Mitch Horowitz has, uh, has uh, explored these in, in several of his recent books and linked them to, uh, you know, actual laboratory studies about, uh, about these matters. For instance, the first step is to induce a state of uh, inactivity or relaxation. Yeah, so like for example, is like this YouTuber Brian Scott, who's like a devotee of Neville Goddard. He primarily does like meditation is like the main 
techniques. So yeah. basically like an emphasis, get into that like hypnagogic stage exactly. before you go to sleep and then think, and then like dream, dream big, focus on what you most desire. Like that's basically the essence of it. Yeah, well, you see, you mentioned the hypnagogic state. So, I mean, you know, we, we, we can, we can link this to actual laboratory studies about, uh, the hypnagogic state and, uh, various, uh, brainwave states and so on, which Neville doesn't talk about. He just talks about, you know, I mean, he used to enjoy having a big lunch and go with several martinis and going home and taking a nap on the sofa. Uh, but, uh, uh, usually it's either early in the morning. Before when you're waking up or at night when you're going to sleep, those liminal states, uh, the hypnagogic states are, uh, are the place where this, where this happens. Previous to that, uh, actually the first step really, if you, if you want to be precise about it, the first step is to determine what you actually want. And that's where the whole uh, million bucks thing comes in. Uh, you know, people. But you have to really like feel, feel the passion for it. It can't just be like, like a simple thought. Exactly. You can't, you can't just, it's, it's not a magic trick. It's not a, a stupid human trick. You know, you can't just say, okay, uh, uh manifest, uh, a, a glass of beer on, on this table right now. Yeah. No, it has to be your deepest desire because as Carly said, it has to be, you have to identify your will with God's will. So this is serious stuff and you have to really be honest with yourself and think a lot about what you really want because the next step is to uh, is to uh, create an imaginary scene that would imply the fulfillment of your wish, and the third step is to imbue it with passion, as Abel says, to uh, to love it with uh, a warm fire, uh, which he gets from the alchemist. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, as, as Neville say, feeling is the secret. That's the title of one of his books. Yeah, and this is and like, that, and that's the secret because that's why you can't just do this in a laboratory. It's a feeling or can't just and a scene. Yeah, yeah, you have to 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 imagine that scene uh, until it takes on the the uh, the uh, atmosphere of reality, and then dismiss it. You know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Austin Spare and Crowley and so on would say the same thing, or Genesis Peorage in our own time. I uh, would say the same thing. You, know, you once you imbue it with with that reality, then you dismiss it from your mind. And you never think about it again. This is also like very Crowleyan. But this oh, also yeah, makes me think Crowley. of like meme magic and the idea that like Trump got elected because of affirmations mm-hmm. and like Pepe the Frog memes, like stuff like that. Well, I among the essays in my book are are ones that uh, talk about the, the relation of Crowley to to all this. It's it's fairly obvious. Uh, you know, the, uh, you know, magic being control of reality and, uh, by the will. Uh, Alistair Crowley's personal secretary at one point was a guy named, um, uh, his name, Israel Regardi. Uh, and uh, after uh, uh, leaving uh, Crowley's employee uh, during the Second World War, he was in America and he met Neville Goddard and uh, wrote uh, a large chapter in his book. Uh, the Romance of Metaphysics, about Neville Goddard, uh, the first mention of him uh, in uh, literature. Um, and uh, it's, it's very interesting to read. And I think the, and Crowley the, himself, I think he, I think he actually died before Neville became really active. Certainly before, before Neville became really known. Uh, he, was, he was giving lectures during World War II. He used his method to get out of uh, the army. 
Oh, right. I heard about that. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and, uh, but in any event, you can read about that in, in, uh, in my book or in uh, Mitch Horowitz's uh, uh, books. Um, and he, and Mitch Horowitz, you know, this is what he's done. He's, he's gone into the army records and so on and verified the dates and things and so on. Uh, there's even an article in the New Yorker uh, talking about Nibble's uh, lectures uh, later that uh, that year. So we, we, we have the whole timeline uh, and it corresponds to what Nibble uh, said. Um, but uh, uh, the point is, uh, Israel Regardi says that uh, of all the new thought uh, practitioners and, and theorists and so on, Nibble's is the most magical. So here we have someone who is intimately familiar with Crowley's work also familiar with Neville's work and makes that connection that Neville is, is practicing magic in, uh, in the Crowleyan sense. He also says to get back to something you said before, uh, Neville's, Neville's uh, listeners would be very uh, uh, disappointed to, to learn that he's really an atheist. Because he, well, because he thinks that God is your human imagination. God isn't some guy in the sky. Well, so he rejects, that means he rejects, God in the traditional Abrahamic yeah, sense, right. but if he believes your imagination is God, that is some kind of a metaphysical belief that I wouldn't call that atheism. Well, yeah, he's he's being a little uh, provocative there, but see, that's what I was saying before. He's 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 not you know your sort of left wing uh, materialist uh, progress uh, believer, uh, you know, anti religion kind of guy, uh, because he believes in in your your imagination being all powerful your imagination is ultimately the same thing and obviously not everyone's imagination is equal because it requires training and that's where elitism comes in. and that's why it's so important that these people these people i'm writing about talk about what you need to do you know crowley wrote many books trying to explain in modern terms in scientific terms uh uh, how magic works and how it, you do it. Neville did the same thing, not scientifically, but uh, uh, as an interpretation of Bible of the Bible. Um, Alan Watts, uh, Colin Wilson, um, all the people I talk about in there are, are trying to uh, find ways to make uh, magic uh, something that people can actually practice and thereby prove it to themselves, as Neville says. I mean, the only proof modern people and this is what what Alan Watts is talking about in a Spanglerian point of view. The modern world, we're not interested in traditionalism. We're not interested in faith. We're not interested in that. We're interested in proving it to ourselves by experience. And so, these proving are, like proving the existence of God via science, it was a huge. What happened? It was it was a huge thing, like spiritual science or alchemy, proving the existence of God via science. It was huge for a while during the Renaissance. But then I think what happened is during the Enlightenment, both both like the Christian side and the secular humanist side were adamantly opposed to that concept, which is a big shame. I think I think it's very important, actually. Well, that's what and Neville uh, makes that point that uh, uh, go home, use my method and thereby, you know, when it works, because he's sure it'll work uh, when it works, you will have the best possible proof of the existence of, of the spiritual world. You will have proven it. Uh, I mean, I just make this one point that you, you're talking about Oprah and, and all these prosperity people and so on. That's only one aspect of Neville's work because that's what he called the law. And of course, today we have the what's called the law of, a, of a assumption and the law of attraction, rather. Um, the law of ne- attraction is 
that wasn't. I think that's a, that's a fame. That's another famous book, but yeah. I think it's much more famous than Neville. But it's pro- I'm sure yeah. probably influenced by him. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. So they, they get that from Neville. Uh, or tell the other well, one is I forget the name, but there's a no, the another secret. book that's more obscure called like Telecosmic Power. That's another one. Oh, well, that's that's obscure enough. I haven't heard of it. Uh, like Anthony, but, something like Italian sounding name, like Anthony Demasio. Maybe I don't know the. Well, it's called like Telecosmic Power. Well, I'll look, I'll look that up. The uh, but anyway, he called it the law. Now in the late fifties, Neville had a mystical experience in which he was reborn from outside of his skull, uh, which he related to Golgotha, the place of the skull. Um, uh, he had this this intense mystical experience, and he began talking about it. This was the experience of becoming one with God. And he called this uh, the promise. So there was the law and there was the promise. And the purpose of the law was to make your life easier and to prove to you in, in experiential terms that the spiritual world existed, that God existed. And on that basis, you could anticipate the process, the promise. The promise is what he was really interested in. He said that, that uh, the idea was that uh, people would acquire all the material goods they wanted and thereby learn that that wasn't what they wanted. But he could only do that if he got the stuff. Otherwise, he would just be hankering for it. Uh, Oscar Wilde said something uh, similar. Um, people didn't like this message, even in the 50s. They wanted the old, what we would today call prosperity gospel. They wanted that. They wanted Oprah's stuff. They said, you know, go back to telling us how to get new cars and things. Uh, and uh, Neville's uh, uh, manager or you know booking agent and so on said, uh, you know, you're killing it, man. And uh, Neville said, uh, I will preach this to the empty walls. That, that's, that's how much he, uh, he was invested in this. So it, ultimately, it's a, a doctrine about the uh, becoming one with God. But the first step is the law, which is proving to yourself that your imagination is more powerful. than. So you have to kind of believe in it first. That's the key. Yeah, but but... You have to start by believing it, but the point is it will prove itself to you. You will have that proof. He, he says the only proof a modern man will accept, and this goes back to Watts and, and uh, Spengler and Burroughs and Crowley and all these people, the only proof that a modern man will want, will accept, is an empirical experience. And if we can produce that, then people will have a solid basis for their religious beliefs, their, their spiritual beliefs. We're, we're done with faith. We're done with uh, uh, just believing in dogma. You know, Watts has this three-step thing, the Spenglerian thing. You know, you, you start with the, the, the Catholic Church, where it's all about faith uh, in dogma, all about believing dogma. And then you have Protestants who say, no, 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 it has, it has to be this this uh, religious, personal religious faith. Uh, but we're, we're beyond that now. We, we need empirical proof. And, uh, you know, or looking at it another way, it's, oh, my goodness, uh, we used to be in the Golden Age, but now we're in the Kali Yuga and everything's terrible. Well, what's appropriate to the Kali Yuga? What's appropriate to the Kali Yuga is empirical proof. Uh, so rather, so for Avila, rather than just uh, sitting around waiting for the end, uh, it's the Kali Yuga. Well, you should have a spiritual practice that's appropriate to the Kali Yuga. What's that? Materialism. I don't know if you get into like Rudolf Steiner, and but I was like, I did a show uh, a while back, and it's interesting because, like, how theosophy 
is actually much more is actually much more compatible with hereditarian thinking as opposed to like the idea of like ironically like really rigid Christian view on salvation is more it's really based upon a blank slateism. I do agree, and do you see like some irony in that? Um, well, I don't know much about the theosophy, although I've sort of like nibbled around the edges of it. The, um, I guess like I this is like a philosophical concept like I've thought of, but I'm saying like it's sort of uh, the, like the Christian view yeah. on salvation is based is sort of based upon like a blank slate. So because everyone yeah. is very much shaped by our biology and circumstances, which is hereditarian, then they do kind of need like their own their own spiritual path to God and also to kind of be judged upon like their unique traits. So it's it's kind of like a anti-egalitarian but also a more pluralist way to look at things this this is a good example of what you were we were talking about at the beginning about how these things sound like they're they're new agey uh but they're also sound they're also uh rightist because i know what i do know is uh you know spengler talks about different races and he gets this course and steiner like rudolf steiner's view of like spiritual race and theosophy too yeah yeah so but so here's the thing. So Steiner is per, perhaps most known today uh, among ordinary people for these uh, uh, schools, these Waldorf schools, and uh, you know NPR listening, hippy dippy. Uh, yeah, and there's been like parents. a push. They've been targeted by like cancel culture. Exactly. Background. Right, because they're racist. Right. But they're because usually, they... I think, they're like upper upper class kind of white liberals who are kind of right, new, exactly. uh, new age. Exactly. The, the upper age white, these upper age, uh, upper class uh, uh, white liberals, hippy dippy types uh, think, oh, we should, we should have a uh, hippy dippy uh, advanced uh, progressive school for our children, not some horrible public school. So they send them to the Waldorf schools and they, the children start learning about races. Right. So th- this becomes very, very tough. So, I mean, you know, this is an example of what you were saying before. Someone who was, you know, a really far out spiritual guy like Rudolf Steiner, uh, really wacky, if you will, uh, nevertheless, in modern terms, turns out to be a terrible racist. You know, I mean, you know, the National Socialists uh, uh, uh Clamp down on uh, on theosophists and uh, anthroposophists. I think he was he was he didn't really fit into neatly into the left versus right binary exactly, because he was outspoken exactly. against like the rise exactly. of the Nazis. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a book somebody just wrote recently uh, uh, defending Steiner from the charge of being an anti-Semite and so on. I mean, you know, you, this all this stuff goes back and forth and back and forth. But the the thing of it is that here you can see that you know traditionalism. Uh, is it's sort of like New Age, and it's, it's sort of not like New Age. You know, if, if you really read the traditionalists, like Gain on and Abel is obviously you know fascist, but uh, if you look at Gain on and so these other guys, uh, they don't like to talk about Abel. They, you know, when I was reading the traditionalists, I never even knew anything about Abel. They never mentioned it. There was just this one book review by uh, Titus Burkhardt of the uh, Ride the, the Tiger. Uh, that I came across, and he was, of course, you know, oh, Abel is uh, nonsense. He's, he's, he's evil. He's terrible. He's a Nazi, and so on. Right? This is a traditionalist talking. So that was the official view about Abel. So you know, today we just lump them all together. Oh, they're all traditionalists. You were not supposed to talk about Abel among traditionalists, 
But on the other hand, if you look at uh, Schwann and Guinan and so on, their stuff is hardly hippy-dippy stuff, you know. Uh, so in terms of cancel culture, these guys all fall into the same uh, the same basket. My point of view then was from the start was, well, if they're all going to be called Nazis, I might as well read the Nazis. You know, I might as well read Abel, right, <laughs> instead of these other guys who are just sort of like pretending not to be. Um, you know, let's get into the real hardcore stuff. And that's, uh, that's in, uh, in Abel. Uh, that's, that's a reduction. <laughs> William Burroughs is another interesting one because he's, he became, he, again, like he was a beatnik, but he became popular with, uh, uh counterculture and yeah. even Holly, even like Hollywood with, uh, with yeah. the movie made out of Naked Lunch. I think that was some time in the night, may have been in the nineties, but yeah, late nineties. Right. So, but yeah. it's, it's interesting because there's different angles to him because he was definitely like an extreme, like hedonist and would be viewed as like a total degenerate by <laughs> any like conservative or traditional moral viewpoints. Oh, yeah. But he's also very much kind of a, kind of a liber, I'd say like a libertarian, like an extreme anarchist, but also he kind of reminded me, a bit of like the Marquis de Sade's philosophy of just do do what feels great good to you, regardless of like the moral outcomes yeah. or impacts on others. And he very much had this view of being kind of suffocated by society that was yeah. kind of keeping yeah. him down. But then on top of that, he had this mm-hmm. like if you like I've, I have actually read Naked Lunch. It is extremely like hypnagogic and surreal. But he actually created his own like metaphysical like realm that he believed in. Oh yeah. Yeah, well, first of all, he would have been very upset to uh, to hear you call him a beatnik, because <laughs> he was he was the. So he rejected that label. Is more than well, the, he rejected the label. He wasn't. And he wasn't a the journal. Like journalists was, referred to referred to him as a beatnik, but he rejected yeah, that. Yeah, journalists say a lot of stuff. Right, uh, of course. Uh, yeah. The uh, the uh, but he was the elder spokesman. He, he was from an earlier generation. He was teaching uh, Kerouac and Ginsburg at. Uh, it went in New York, in Columbia. By that time, he was already a long-time drug addict and uh, freak of various sorts. He used to give them books. He he made them read Spengler. Now, there, there's a right-winger for you, right? He was telling them to read Spengler. Uh, <clears throat> that's where he was getting his ideas from. There's a clue as to uh, what his beliefs are. Uh, a more practical level, of course, he was a gun fanatic, which is not really a, a hippie sort of thing um of course these, these things people like this always get a pass you know they get grandfathered in um I he hasn't you. been a target of counterculture maybe being like a lgbtq icon has helped yeah. somewhat but he actually hasn't really been i don't think he's been a target of cancel culture yet like i've read naked lunch like some of the no. i think like the probably but probably like the sexual stuff is the most outrageous in that oh, yeah but it's well, so you know, surreal it's that's the thing it's like it's like a fever dream well, on the LGBT front, you see, if, if uh, there's one book I know of called uh, Queer Burroughs, and uh, if you actually look at what Burroughs says in interviews, particularly, uh, he's not really very politically correct about uh, queers, uh, as he likes to call it. You know, he's he's very he he's not, uh, you know, how should I put it? He he. He, his idea of homosexuality is uh, a sort of like a hyper macho sort of thing. And uh, throughout all, all of his writings, uh, you know, queers, fags, transvestites, and so on are all figures of fun, uh, mockery, 
uh, are, uh, are, or are sinister. And so on, you know, the traditional, you know, sinister transvestite and all that, uh, Burroughs was all, all for that. He, he despised, uh, fags and fens and, and so on. Uh, which is kind of ironic because apparently in, in the bedroom, he was, he was quite a, quite a femme, uh, which really freaked people out. Who <laughs> got, got that close to him, you know, he, 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 he also did an imitation of Crowley with the falsetto. But, uh, yeah, he was, he was very old school in that way, uh, which you, one maybe not that doesn't pick up on in his writing because you just normally think, oh yeah, he's, 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 uh, he's queer. He's, he's pro queer and so on. He's, he's pro some queers. <laughs> not, but not all of them. It's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, Burroughs with his characters that uh, are subject to undergo instantaneous transformations and so on and things like that. It, it sounds like he would be a, at home with uh, transsexualism and transhumanism and so on, but it's not all that clear that uh, that he would approve of that kind of thing. He certainly doesn't like drag queens. Uh, he certainly doesn't like fens. Uh, would he like transsexuals? Does he? Would he like the whole idea of, of gender fluidity um you know in theory he would you know because you know, he's burrow well, it's almost you know? like he would view that as like more naked lunch it's very much like every every character is almost like they're they're like less than human they're, they're more like symbols or objects like you don't feel like there are all these yeah. like grotesque things happening but you don't really feel any like emotional attachment to any of them the key the key thing is that he doesn't have any characters that, because everyone is subject to instantaneous and complete transformation of the song. Uh, which is is the terrifying aspect. Like, what is it like? It's been a while since I read it, but I think people turn into these like giant like insects. Yeah, giant centipedes. And, uh, right. Yeah, uh, but here's the th- but here's the thing. More more dogmatically speaking, or, or theoretically speaking, the thing about Burroughs that goes back to what you said about Watts when you talked about Watts rejecting scripts. Uh, Burroughs was all about rejecting control. He was obsessed with with the well, idea. Watts of Watts was too like control. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like almost uh, like you could even say like the extre- the Marquis de Sade might be the extreme of that, but then there's just a view like there's just so much bullshit and arbitrary control in society, like right. life scripts and bureaucracy and critique of that. And maybe I mean today I think you get that more from the right, but it used to be kind of a hippie thing because exactly. I remember Bernie Bernie Sanders, who's considered very progressive, he got flack for saying when he was younger he wrote Bernie Sanders actually wrote sensitive young men are being oppressed in school by like these teachers who refer he referred to them as like old bitches so that's that's like so i think think yeah that's total burrows but i think there's been such a paradigm shift so a lot of people we think of as as of the left would say things that are considered right-wing now oh exactly exactly and uh yeah burrows was obsessed with control so that's the one key uh element in, in all of his writings and so on uh which gets back to what i was saying before about practicality was he was all about uh, trying to find some practical way to get con- to to find out who's doing the control and break that control and take take control of it. That's why he, that's what the cutoffs were supposed to be. He was interested in, uh, uh, of course, crank stuff like uh, Scientology and uh, Wilhelm Reich and people like that. But it was all about uh, you know control uh, and and in a way you know. I've some people I haven't seen this in print. No one's dared to put this in print yet. So I haven't seen a consistent argument. Some people think that there's a, a, a Jewish element 
that when he's talking about these these extraterrestrial creatures taking over the planet and instilling instilling control and uh, and all that and taking over our minds and so on, he's really talking about Jews. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's interesting. He could maybe go that way, and that's another way. In which I don't know. I think some people just they read right. they read into everything. Some people read that into everything. You know, there's a Jew under my bed. There's a Jew in my shower, in my sandwich, and so on. Like Kafka was Jewish and very much into Kabbalah, but very similar. Theme, very similar themes. I'm not really sure what his relation with. I think Kafka writes a lot about the oppression of bureaucracy in a surreal sense. He was interested in both the Kabbalah, but also actually like European kind of like pagan mysticism as well. So that's oh, yeah. that's like interesting. Yeah, actually, I have a, a piece on countercurrents uh, somewhere about Kafka as a uh, as an Aryan uh, sort of writer. Uh, uh, I can't think of the uh, the name of it, but uh, it's a review of a book that uh, somebody came out with recently. Not so recently now, it'll probably be about 2016, 2017 or something like that. I mean, if you write a book, Kabbalah as like Aryan mysticism, that's going to get a lot of insane responses. Uh, yeah, well, there, you know, there is a book called The Greek Kabbalah spelled with the- Yeah, I think that might be true because it's kind of like, it's kind of a cliche of like right right wing anti semites will say, oh, we have these Kabbalistic elites. <laughs> but it's interesting is that it's always been Kabbalah is interesting because it was influenced by a lot of like pagan non Abrahamic influences. So like in places like Spain and Morocco from like Sufism, and then I think in the early Middle Ages, like around the year eleven hundred, there was some influence. Actually, European paganism got got influenced some of the early like Jewish sects. Yeah, well, I mean, the the idea along those lines is that um, the Kabbalah is simply a Jewish appropriation of Neoplatonism. So it's really uh, it's really Neoplatonism. Also, uh, Abel maintained that um, uh, the uh, Neoplatonism, the Christian, uh, well, not Christian, the Western uh, esoteric tradition, in order to hide from the Christian inquisitors and so on. Uh, as early as the 800s, uh, the, that the Western esotericism was hidden with the rabbis. So that in order to recover, you know, so in other words, there's Western esotericism and then this Christianity stuff came in, which for Abel is, is a alien tradition that has nothing to do with mysticism at all, really. And then, and then the real Western mystical tradition doesn't go through Christianity. It's hidden among the rabbis and then reemerged in the Renaissance. So, uh, so Avila actually, you know, doesn't buy any of this, you know, oh, the, the wonderful Judeo-Christian tradition in the West and so on. And so, on. you know, he thinks it went from, from the Greeks through the, the rabbis, uh, into the, uh, the Renaissance, uh, which is an interesting idea. I don't know if it's true, but, uh, uh, that would, you know, that would, that would indicate. Oh, like alchemy, that, like the popularity of alchemy at that time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's why Avila was, was willing to, uh, to read and, and uh, make use of uh, Jewish uh, Kabbalistic texts and so on. You know, he wasn't like, oh, this is this is the Jews. It's terrible. You know, no, no Abel himself uh, 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 studied the uh, their writings uh, because he thought that's where the actual Western tradition was found. It was, didn't come from the Jews, but it was hidden among the Jews because the Christians, which was another kind of Judaism, uh, we're, you know, running around burning stuff and burning. This goes to that, that kind of this trend where all the Abrahamic faiths 
have some mystical component like you have islam has sufism and christianity has like christian mystics then you have the kabbalah there's always this duality with all the abrahamic faiths yeah there's there's always a duality you know uh uh here's a little nugget of uh traditionalist wisdom for your listeners um you know, people always talk about the esoteric and exoteric, and uh, you know, like there's the dogmatic exoteric, and then there's the hidden mystical esotericism. But that's not how it, it actually works, according to Genon. Uh, it's different in, in, in different traditions. So that in uh, in the Chinese tradition, there's actually two different traditions. There's the, the exoteric Confucianism, and then there's the mystical Taoism. So Taoism isn't the hidden core of Confucianism or anything like that. Uh, and uh, uh, in uh, in Islam, uh, Sufism is not uh, esoteric Islam. He said it was Islamic esotericism. I think I have that right. Uh, in other words, these and this is Georgiani says essentially the same thing that that uh, you know the Sufis had to cover their mysticism with this layer of Islam because otherwise they'd be persecuted. Uh, but it doesn't emerge out of Islam. It's not really part of Islam. In fact, most Orthodox Muslims consider Sufis to be heretics anyway. Um, but they had to uh, use the language of the Quran in order to escape persecution. It's only it's only in Christianity because of the factors we've been talking about that uh, mysticism is sort of like hidden inside of the of the tradition. You get that in Neville. You know, he's giving a a mystical reading of the Bible. Uh, which is very interesting because even the most, you know, historical, he, he says the Bible has no history in it and none of the people in it are, are real, which of course is not quite true. I mean, Caesar was real <laughs> and so on. But, uh, you know, that, but basically that's his, his point. It's a, it's a, it's a psychological or capitalistic document using the language, uh, of history, uh, which is actually a very modern point of view. It's, uh, it's kind of interesting. Another writer you mentioned is Colin Wilson. Yeah, who is uh, associated more with the angry young men literary genre equivalent of the Brit of the the British equivalent of the Beats, though actually some people would uh, kind of dispute that label. And then mm-hmm. he wrote The Outsiders, which is about sort of about like alienation and creative types, but in a very kind of like more Nietzschean sense. But yeah. I, I think what he's like most known for is his writings on on uh, the concept of consciousness, and there are actually may seem like more i think he's like more practical than neville goddard but with colin wilson he talks uh, and it's interesting because like i actually in 2002 i have obviously never met him but i lived about a half half hour away from him which is kind of interesting but like with colin wilson like he talks about like how to kind of not so much about like he had some interest in like the supernatural but a lot of practical uh, and he was an incredibly prolific writer, but like a really practical advice on how to expand like the full sense of consciousness and the p like p consciousness is the word he we used to describe like the full human experience. Right. Well, again, uh, he would uh, he would dispute the idea of it being a beatnik, but he would also dispute the idea of being an angry young man. He uh, he rejected that. Uh, I think again, like even with kind of like the beatniks, that was more of a concoction by the media. Exactly, exactly. And particularly in Colin Wilson's case, or The Angry Young Men, uh, it's an interesting book he published uh, uh, called uh, The Angry Years, which is his uh, summing up and uh, settling accounts with that. It's very, it's a very amusing book because uh, basically he just goes through all the angry young men and points out how they, they 
you know, ran out of things to write about and became drunkards and dropped dead and so on. And they had all these terrible lives. And, but I'm still here. Ha ha. You know, as you see, <laughs> implications. He, out, he outlived them all. Uh, they all became failures of one sort or another. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So, so as he, as he says, it was just created by journalists to uh, to lump all these people together, and they really had very nothing, very little to do with each other. Uh, and that's why, when he's even already with his second book, uh, a review of which is in my uh, my book, uh, Religion and the Rebel, uh, that was his second book after The Outsider, which was pumped up by the journalists. You know, oh, this this brilliant young man, and so on. And uh, then he published his second book, Religion and the Rebel, and they decided, well, it's time to take him down the pig. They uh, they all uh, attacked him as a as a, a autodidact. Like know. he became super famous overnight with the Outsider. Yeah. Then there was some weird thing where his his father in law or someone like found some yeah. weird like serial killer writings and it went to the media and the police and that destroyed his reputation. Something like that. He went to the media and the police, and he also went to uh, Wilson's apartment uh, and uh, right. with, a, with a, a stick or a belt or something, and, and, and said something like, "I'm I'm here to deal with you, Wilson," or something, some Victorian thing. Right. Like that. It was very uh, very ridiculous. Yeah, with his writings, I think he was very much he was interested in both like Crowley and mysticism, and then also he was influenced by H.P. Lovecraft, and then politically he had some. He actually had some ties early on with uh, to Mosley, but he doesn't strike me as like overly political. That angle was interesting. He, well, he did have some ties with Mosley, and I think Mosley even reviewed the Outsider. Yeah, yeah, yeah you can find that on Countercurrents. Actually, the uh, Mosley's review—they reprinted that. Uh, but I, the ties is, is maybe too close. Uh, you know, when, when talking about these political people, and so on. I mean, he wasn't ever a Member yeah, and I think the off- best way to go about is the not being overtly political. These people <laughs> what really fascinate me. They come at it more from like the creative or philosophical side, and then they kind of discover these ideas that like the cliche term would be like they become like quote unquote based kind of on their own rather than in- get this like indoctrinated like I'm on team red or team blue and all that bullshit. Yeah, yeah, the. Uh... But at the time of the Mosley uh, stuff and so on, uh, you know, Wilson and uh, Bill Com- Bill Hopkins, uh, who was certainly a, an elitist uh, and so on, they were sort of like, yeah, I mean, the, th- the thing is that, that for, uh, what we've been calling them is like spiritual elitists and, and so on. And to a certain extent, they were social elitists as well, because that kind of goes with it, uh, you know, because society should, should uh, you know, identify these people and uh, support them, uh, these, these mystical. And, and so, so they, they would have the, they were having like little meetings and political things and so on. And the journalist got a hold of it and said, Oh, Colin Wilson and Bill Hopkins are planning to uh, a neo-Nazi revolution or something. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, uh, you know, right. and, like Wilson, other than the early correspondence of Mosley, he doesn't strike me as political at all. Maybe he was like a tepid Tory. Colin Wilson? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. I mean, I think he actually, he probably thought of himself. Maybe he did, like, he did benefit from the 60s counterculture as far as some of the interest in his subject matter. That doesn't mean that he, like, supported them. Oh, no, no. 
<clears throat> you know, I, I did uh, like there was like in England after the war, there was this embrace of like extreme utilitarianism and kind of like rationalism and like petty bourgeois values. And then yeah. same with like Lovecraft, like love someone like HP Lovecraft probably like would have hated the hippies, but after <laughs> his death, like there was this revival or interest in his work uh, during that sixties counterculture. Well, the thing that, that infuriated Wilson about, uh, England in the 50s and 60s and even always <laughs> England as such the reason why he preferred America uh, was that uh, that uh, the British uh, you know they thought they were were too sophisticated for for big ideas that anybody <clears throat> talked about big ideas yeah I think that's tr- I think there could be some truth to that because like the French the French are stereotyped as as being like putting a lot of value on creativity, arts, and philosophy. The Americans are kind of like, I think the downside of America is like the economic commodification of everything. But America does have this kind of exceptional, like Promethean spirit. So there is like the stereotype of like the British having this kind of like narrow-minded, like middle-class values, which I I mean, it's probably based on, truth compared to other countries yeah. well and and with reference to the angry young men you know and you know wilson uh, would would say that the the angry young men were were these these post-war guys you know the war was over and they were supposed to be the the winners and uh they came back to england and it was the same old uh, uh elitist uh hierarchical bullshit and so on and their response was to uh was to ma- was to mock and uh, denigrate uh, culture, and so on. In other words, you know, lis- listening to Mozart. Well, that that that's what some some toffee nosed uh, uh, upper class. I, I, I think Wilson. And so it doesn't on. strike so, me. I think Wilson. That doesn't necessarily strike me of how Wilson saw it. I think he no no had no, a that, lot of appreciation that, for the classics. No, no, that's what I'm saying. That that. But anything angry, I'd say like Wilson. Man, I think Wilson was probably influenced. Maybe he's been described as existentialist, but I think he's actually more influenced by like the 19th century, like the first half of the 19th century. Like you had like romanticism. Well, you see, but that's the point I make that, that Wilson was not an angry young man. What he said was that the angry young men were these, these guys who reacted to the crumbling British aristocracy by identifying culture with that kind of aristocracy and therefore mocking it as, as outsiders. Uh, you mentioned 19th century romanticism. Well, that's exactly what they would, would consider to be bullshit. You know, oh, that 19th century romanticism, eh, Wilson? Uh, so, uh, and, you know, he, he talks particularly about Kingsley Ames as uh, uh, someone who got locked into this attitude from his first novel, Lucky Jim, of just being an outsider mocking these stuck-up culture people and therefore having no culture being being unable to to uh to uh take over that that, that culture to to, uh, to acquire it they they just sat around mocking it you know and you, you know you find that among the punks for instance in england and so on i guess this idea of like the sort of a creative cast as like the natural aristocracy or like aristocratic mm-hmm. radicalism or individualism and I guess like there is this special like creative types as this class that are being suppressed by like modern Western society or like the artist as a, as a caste suppressed by managerialism or kind of mercantile values, liberal capitalism. And I think that's been like a huge theme with a lot of 
thinkers you've covered. So like this idea of like how to kind of liberate this cast mm-hmm. and some practical, some like post solutions might be like the social credit idea or like economic of like C.H. Douglas, economic patronage, like the need for leisure. And it kind of explains like, so like Oscar Wilde, he supported socialism, but for culturally elitist reasons, but like all these thinkers like Winham Lewis, Oscar Wilde, H.P. Lovecraft, uh, Colin Wilson, Ezra Pound, I think like a lot of them envisioned like the artist as like this aristocratic type cast. And like, that's really the contrast with like the sixties counterculture. I think, it had more of a negative impact because it was like this, it was like this egalitarian individualism, but that was easily co-opted by like big institutions and like, by like big capitalism. And I think there is like, there is sort of a downside in like the downside in like nonconformity for the sake of it, because I don't really see it like for the masses and there are limitations to that kind of individualism. The theme is like these thinkers, they have like skepticism of like commercial values and, so yeah, like that that is kind of like that is like a major theme. And I think it even applies to someone like Salvador like Dolly, who he was an artist with interest in like mysticism, but some skepticism of modernity at the same time. But how would you kind of like summarize sum up that concept and how it relates to these thinkers? <laughs> their their individualism was was a response to hierarchies that were insufficient. Uh, that uh, that uh, or was it a response like in the 20th century you had the you had the kind of stodgy the stodgy old aristocracy or the hereditary kind of old money the hereditary like old families and then you had like this new like mercantile elite that was in the managerial class that was arising and i think they a lot of these thinkers they saw themselves as like the true cultural elite but they felt really like like really kind of oppressed and pushed aside. And that, well, that theme at, is very, it's very relevant today, but I think it really like, it really like reflected a lot of thinkers of the 20th century, even like the late, later part of the 19th century. Well, look at these, look at these guys. So supposedly they're all like individualists and, and, uh, and all that. But really what they're doing is, is that they're, they're <clears throat> separating themselves from the existing culture and they're trying to find, some alternative culture. Now, if you look at all these guys, they all seem to be dealing with some non-orthodox uh, canon. So you have Watts, who, uh, who became interested as a teenager in uh, Oriental philosophy. And uh, you have Colin Wilson, who's interested in uh, 19th century romanticism and so on. Uh, you have Neville, who's interested in uh, Blake and the Bible, basically. Uh, he said those were his only two books. Uh, Crowley, uh, tried to rediscover, uh, magic, uh, through, uh, through ancient writings and Kabbalah and so on. Uh, they're all proclaiming themselves to be individualists vis-a-vis their existing culture. But what they, what they actually want is to be a part of some other kind of culture. So their, their, uh, their, their individualism is, is sort of provisional. Or uh, uh, relative. I mean, maybe it seems like a cope, but it's like you could say it's like an aristocratic individualism. You could be successful, or you could be alienated from society, with a sense that you have this grand vision to reshape society. Could be like a narcissistic sense. You're not part of the collective, but it's very different than just liberal individualism. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're part of a of a spiritual elite, then uh, it's it's uh, it's alongside or underneath or or in a different dimension and so on than the the existing social uh, hierarchy. Um, so it uh, it sort of like fades in and out as to, to whether you're a member of the elite or not. You're not a member of the political elite uh, or the social elite, perhaps. But on the other hand, you're a member of the spiritual elite. Uh, you know, uh, Crowley, you know, came from a rich, uh, family, uh, but, uh, uh, they were, you know, religiously odd. Uh, they were members of a apocalyptic, uh, Protestant cult. So they weren't Church of England or anything like that. And, uh, he eventually made himself into the wickedest man in the world. But, uh, that was because he had become a master magician through his contacts with the, the secret chiefs in Tibet and so on. So there's the alternate hierarchy, you know? Um, so he's, uh, I mean, that's, that's a kind of, you know, ultimate status, the wickedest man in the world, right? He's on top of the heap, you know? Uh, he's reached the top of the pyramid. Um, but, uh, uh, it's not the, uh, the standard social pyramid. Um, <clears throat> I think, yeah, I think all these people have, have kind of, uh, you know, Burroughs uh, family was uh, a minor branch of the Burroughs adding machine family. This modest amount of wealth. Or yeah, even H.P. Lovecraft, like he came from an old money exactly. family, but they lost it. But it does right. show you, like Americans have this obsession with like being self-made. But I actually think, I mean, I think a lot of that is actually bullshit. I think a lot yeah. of times like you need you need sort of like cultural and spiritual elitism, but then you also need like the patronage, like American value. I think, I mean, I think the American concept of meritocracy is idea of like being a self-made man economically. I think it's, I think it's been a disaster. Yeah. Not just like today. It's not like one of these people who say everything about America was great until like the recent, like liberal woke changes. I think there's been like fundamental flaws there from way back. Yeah, well, I mean, one of my uh, ongoing themes that has nothing particularly to do with mysticism, but another theme that I've been uh, exploring in uh, writings for countercurrents and so on, particularly about uh, movies and television, is uh, the uh, the con man is the uh, the essential American archetype. Right, uh, right, or yeah, with Trump, like yeah, I mean, hey, well, that Trump, applies yeah. to Trump, and that's kind of the appeal. That's kind of the appeal to him. Exactly, exactly. He's, he's the, the ultimate American, uh, American comment. You've seen this, uh, this so-called, uh, 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 mugshot that they're, they're yeah, I have, up. yeah. It's like, uh, it, I think people are saying it looks like, it looks like a consistent theme of my characters in Stanley Kubrick movies. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, well, and, and, and rightly so, just re- referring to Stanley Kubrick movies, right? It looks like something from a movie. It's not a mugshot. They claim it's a mug. There's no mug. This is Miles Mathis territory. Math- Miles Mathis is always pointing out these mugshots that obviously aren't mugshots because they got people wearing hats or they're standing in the wrong way. Right, mugshots right. Are, are standardized, right? They're standardized. Nobody's mug. Where's the little chalkboard underneath his his neck with the with the details on? It, right. Where's where's the uh, profile shot? Where why is it color? Why is he staring at the camera like a Stanley Kubrick villain? You know, it's the most obvious. If you didn't think that the whole Trump thing was a was a, a con right from the beginning, you have to think it's a con now. I mean, they're they're just it's in your face. 
Right, <laughs> this, right. This is the standard. This is the last move. The standard last move of the con is the revelation of the method. Right. He shows you his hand. He shows you what he's done. And then he smiles, as uh, Poe says, Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, the con, you know, Poe's uh, story, uh, diddling is a fine art. Uh, <clears throat> the diddler at night lies down and smiles. Right. There's, there's always that, that last little smirk. And that's, that's what you, you got with the Trump mugshot. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I mean, you might, <laughs> the whole thing is up. The whole thing now, I believe deep the whole thing. It great. looks almost like a deep fake. Yeah. I have like a new book out, Vapor Fornia. It's a sequel yeah. to my first book, Journey to Vapor Island. You reviewed the first book and you I said did. you made some comparisons to Confederacy of Dunces, William S. Burroughs, and angry young men like, uh, Kings, Kingsley Amos, and you yeah. said it takes basic alt-right tropes, the alienation, but it transcends into a magical uh, miserableism. Did you get a chance to look over uh, the second book? I have not. Okay, have not. so... But I wanted to say, but I, I felt bad about that. So I, I took That's a look at, at a review that somebody wrote uh, on Goodreads. So it's on Goodreads. Here you go. Uh, and they said something that I thought was uh, was uh, was interesting. That um, you write about, uh, and this is true. It's it's very. It seems like it's very much like the first book. It's a different version, which is okay because, as, as you know from my movie reviews, I, I love repetition. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it seems it's very much like the first book in a way. Uh, but anyway, this guy says you write uh, about a world that's waiting for a messiah to save them instead of uh, relying on their own imaginations. And uh, that that seems to indicate that your new book is very much in line with what we've been talking about. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's so insightful, because what's interesting is I wrote this long before I had any interest in new thought thinkers like Neville Goddard. I go, it's pretty, mm-hmm. I don't know if I want to, like, boast and say, like, oh, I'm a genius <laughs> or something. Like, Colin Wilson kind of, he kind of did that, and that pisses people <laughs> off. But actually, like I wrote, so I mostly wrote this back in like 2018, 2019. I didn't really get interested in new thought until last year, 2022. But basically to kind of give some interesting, so you have Roger Blackstone and uh, he's, he's running for president and he could be some comparisons to like Elon Musk or Donald Trump. But I think maybe like he symbolizes like the hope of what those people should be but like transcends way beyond them and then he has like this kind of this political philosophy of restructuring society based on aesthetics but also interested he's for like universal basic income but in the sense of like valuing kind of like more leisure and creativity and i think he is fundamentally like blackstone he may support like some left-wing ideas but i i get he is fundamentally like an elitist and there is this kind of alchemy and dual dualism between like the pro protagonist dreams. And then there are these like various, like a, there's like this occult figure in California. So it is like alchemy or new thought and like the concept of like these alternative futures and existing as parallel universes. And then the, the protagonist Max, he's like the kind of loser or loner archetype, but becoming mm-hmm. more, more kind of a like more kind of like empowered or in a sense of like aristocratic radicalism and then this this billionaire presidential candidate like blackstone actually like meets with him and tells him he can change the world like via his thoughts and it's very surreal 
almost in the sense of Burroughs even, maybe not quite, but it takes place in modern day, uh, modern day uh, California and a lot of like dark humor and like satire of contemporary politics. But then some, it is very, a lot of relevance to like occultism and the mystics. And I'd say even like thinkers in your book. Yeah. 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 Black, Blackstone, uh, even from the first book, I think Blackstone is uh, like the, uh, the Trump we uh, deserve. <laughs> right. Right. But uh, I think the same, the same guy talked about, uh, you know, your interest in archaeofuturism and so on, or alternative timelines. I mean, it's been a long time since you reviewed the first book. Did you get any of those, like, new thought-type themes, like the power imagination from the first book, even? And I wrote that way back, I wrote that way back in, like, 2016, 2017, long before I had any interest in this kind of stuff. Um, I may have. Um, well, you know, I, I was talking about magical uh, miserableism. Right. I don't recall specifically but uh i'm just uh, i think I remember the first book the protagonist named gnome he writes yeah. a manifesto then he all right yes carries yes. out this terrific act and when he gets out of prison much later in the future the entire world is transformed by his manifesto so yeah that is yeah that's, actually, yeah, yeah, that's, that's yeah that's like what i picked up on yeah yeah exactly so it's as, it's as if uh you know ordinarily <clears throat> you might be put away in prison for the rest of your life but uh in this in this imaginary sort of world is uh he actually gets out and the world has been transformed well and think I, just, of like- I just wanted to, to to make a note on this that uh, in re- regards to what we were talking these people we've been talking about before Burroughs, uh his interest in the the cut up technique uh was that uh he he believed that that words uh determined what the future was and that's, he, yeah that sounds he, very if you cut if you cut the words, the future leaks out, as he says. Uh, and this and this recalls uh, also Neville, who uh, talked about having a four dimensional view of the world, in it, which he explicitly linked to uh, what in the forties was beginning to leak out about uh, quantum mechanics and so on. Uh, he, he said, in future, physicists will explain why we live in a four dimensional world, but what's important is to use it. And uh, so the idea is that by, if we're not restricted to this three-dimensional world around us, uh, we have a, an access to a fourth dimension by means of which we can reach in and change the world. That what you describe sounds like the concept of the vapor in my book, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that, that's what I'm getting at, yeah. And yeah. I wasn't even aware of that. Interesting, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, as uh, these things uh, these things leap out, Mitch Horowitz talks about how the uh, the new thought writers seemed like they're influenced by people like Hegel and Plotinus and so on, but the, it was impossible for them to be uh, <clears throat> because the, they didn't have access in you know rural America and so on in the 19th century to any of these these writings, uh, which makes it more interesting because it's like the idea just keeps popping up. You know, you don't have to read it in somebody's book and say, "Oh, yeah, now I'm a Hegelian, now I'm a, a Neoplatonist." No, it it just arrives. Uh, which is, of course, because it's true. Um, or like that idea that like all these like there's like a collective knowledge that's stored in all our subconsciousness, like that idea. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's that's a very uh, that's a very elaborate version of it. Uh, you might you might just say it's it's because it's just true. <laughs> you know, you just have to right, open your right. eyes and uh, and look around. 
uh, you know, again, getting through the idea of scripts and control and so on, or, or Watts talking about, uh, you know, breaking out uh, of uh, the, the Western mindset and all that. And Colin Wilson. Or like, the other thing is like these like psychological like prisons and barriers that we yeah. were put in or we put ourselves in and just like letting go. And it makes me think of kind of like, or constraints, like even with like politics, like I guess the idea of like how, how new thought could lead to like radical politics is because we have, we have constraints in society, like the concept of the Overton window. And I guess new thought, when you think anything is possible, that could be basically that removes all, like all restraints, like including like the Overton window. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're not, uh, you know, uh, you know, I mean, I guess, I guess, I guess somebody could use new thought to, uh, you know, reinstitute African slavery or something or, you know, something along those lines. You know, I mean, it's, it's kind of like a neutral in that sense. So, I mean, you could imagine, well, it's, yeah, it's neutral. you could imagine, it's you know, neutral. not, not seeing, it's not, neutral in a sense, but also doesn't have any barriers. So anyone, anyone could do it to push their own yeah, ideology. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's the sort of thing that, uh, I first read about in uh, Jocelyn Godwin's book, uh, Arctos, uh, the myth of the polar myth and Nazi survival or something like that. Uh, and you find that in Georgiani's books and so on, you know, <clears throat> this, this notion of what uh, Godwin calls uh, Nazi spirituality, <laughs> that, that uh, these, these new age ideas are, are equally available to, uh, to any political persuasion. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, you know, Giorgiani, for instance, uh, seems to, you know, what he began to get in trouble with was when he began suggesting that, you know, because parapsychology is real and all the new age people are, are cheering, yeah, parapsychology says, well, therefore, there are all these problems that would arise and therefore we need a strong government to control things. And they go, Ooh. it's interesting because <laughs> George, I interviewed, I interviewed Giorgiani and he actually said, almost sounded more like a leftist. I think what he said in this future of parapsychology where we can read everyone's mind, we have to kind of embrace like this more liberal, like left humanitarian view where it's like socialist, but we have to treat everyone with love and compassion. I think he ended up saying something like that because of parapsychology. Like Giorgiani's one of those thinkers. I think he's brilliant, but it's very like hard to kind of just explain his concepts in layman's terms. Like to well, someone, like to, you can't really explain it to someone with like an IQ of like yeah. ninety. Oh well, I'm out of luck then, I guess. The uh, <clears throat> the uh, but that's that's what I'm talking. That's what we've been talking about. You know, these things sort of like transcend these barriers. I mean, think you know, depending on his audience, uh, he can probably present it in a, a acceptable left leftist sort of view or. Depending on his audience, you could start, you know, I mean, you know, uh, you know, if you're interested in UFOs, for instance, you can, you can take one route and uh, start talking about, you know, peace and love from the, the messengers from the stars and so on. Or you could take the, uh, the national socialist road and start talking about, you know, Nazi UFOs and Antarctic bases and so on. So depending on your audience, you can, you can tailor your message in, in various ways. My memory of, of the book uh, Pro- Prometheus and Atlas was that that, that was his argument that uh, that we needed uh, that, that you know what, what Heidegger called the uh, the uh, the truth of and greatness of national socialism and so on was the fact among other things that they took seriously uh, what kind of state you would need to have if parapsychology was real 
you know, where, where people could read everyone's thoughts and people could control reality and so on. Well, geez, we don't want everyone to have that ability. <laughs> or, yeah, like I think like the whole like debate about like AI and transhumanism, right. like what kind of society like could it lead to like a really authoritarian right. society it probably will take down modern liberalism. But the question is like what replaces it could end up being much worse, but who knows, maybe something, some positive could come from it. I don't know if it's Georgiani or someone else who was talking along uh, these lines that, uh, that, uh, you know, if the, if the official liberal position is uh, we shouldn't have anything to do with genetic engineering because, uh, you know, reasons, uh, the Jap, the Chinese are just going to go ahead anyway. Right, right. And therefore they're going to win. So we're going to live in a, a Chinese social credit. In the bad sense, uh, <laughs> kind of authoritarian uh, system. Not, not C.H. Douglas. Yeah, exactly. The, the other kind. Uh, so that, so, you know, that's, that's the idea. I mean, you, you, you can't, you can't take like a libertarian or a hippie sort of, you know, you know well, whatever happens, you know, or, or, or a, a capitalist sort of, uh, well, whatever makes the most money, you know, no, oh, it, it's not going to work that way because the authoritarian people are going to get serious about this and take over. <laughs> Right, right. That, that's exactly what would happen if people are not like hyper vigilant about these things. Like we're getting, we're getting close to the end of the show before we wrap up. Ah. James, do you want to, do you want to like plug this book, A Mysticism, and your other book, A yeah. Movie Reviews? And then also, do you see like any positive signs in like the art right take t- scene taking off? And like, do you expect to see like a kind of revival in mysticism? Uh, okay. Well, uh, everyone should go out and buy my books. Um, mysticism after modernism. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, you can also get it from the website of the, uh, uh, publisher Manticore Press in uh, Australia. Um, I have a more recent book, uh, which is called Passing the Buck, Coleman Francis and other Metaf- cinematic metaphysicians. Um, which is taking a different tack. Uh, oh, so it's the, about themes of metaphysics in cinema. Yeah, yeah. Or a metaphysical approach to cinema, if you will. Um, it uh, has uh, several, move, many movie reviews. Um, Can you name a f- uh, number of like films and directors that are mentioned? Like, I'm, I'm curious, like, do you like, do you mention like David Lynch, for instance? Actually, I don't. <laughs> Okay, because you think that, like, you think, like, metaphysics, surrealism, and cinema has yeah, to be David Lynch. Yeah. I should look at that. Greg Johnson has done a number of, of Lynch reviews. It uh, might be his favorite director, possibly. Uh, so he's he's pretty well covered that ground, I think. I prefer to look at obscure uh, directors, uh, particularly directors of B-movies or bad movies. Um, and the sort of centerpiece in this in this work is uh, a review of the Coleman Francis trilogy, <clears throat> uh, The Beast of Yucca Flats, The Skydivers, and Red Zone Cuba. Uh, three bottom-of-the-barrel uh, films uh, made from uh, in the early 60s that uh, I think uh, are very, very unique. And uh, uh, they, they're well worth studying. Uh, they're boring films. Uh, as I was mentioning before, I don't have any problem with repetition. Uh, they're extremely boring. They're extremely ugly. They're extremely, uh, you know, his, his films are existentialist in a way that uh, Sartre and other people only dream about being. <laughs> 
Um, they're hard to describe. Uh, so, uh, so take a look, take a look at it. The theme passing the buck is the basic metaphysical theme is the idea of people, uh, surmounting karma by, uh, palming it off on other people. And, uh, only after writing the book did I discover that, uh, some French critics have attributed this to Alfred Hitchcock, uh, that in his, many of his films uh, take that form where, uh, bad guys, uh, pass off their, uh, their bad karma onto, uh, innocent people and thereby achieve enlightenment. So it, it gets back to the idea of, uh, mysticism and enlightenment being, uh, outside of the morality and bad people becoming uh, Buddhists. <clears throat> so, uh, there's a lot of stuff in these bad movies if you, uh, spend a lot of time watching them as I, as I do. Uh, do I see a rebirth of mysticism? Well, uh. I guess mysticism, a revival in like mysticism, and then also your thoughts on this scene, uh, the art right, if you're familiar with it. Oh, the art right. Oh, that's, that's even more uh, interesting. Uh, it, uh, it continues. Um, I, uh, can't think of anything off the top of my head at the moment, but, uh, uh, I would, uh, uh, well, let's, let's first address the question of a revival of mysticism. Uh, there, there may be something to it because uh, there's, I think, more and more scientific study of it, uh, which you can find in uh, uh, recent books by Mitch Horowitz and also books by uh, Dean Rodden, or however his name is pronounced, R-A-D-I. It's a recent book called Real Magic uh, about the uh, scientific study of uh, uh, telepathy and hypnagogic states and things like that. Um, also, uh, the work of Bernardo uh, Castro on uh, what he calls analytic idealism, uh, which is uh, a sort of revival of 19th century I- idealism in terms of quantum mechanics. Uh, very interesting and uh, very good metaphysical understanding of why new thought is possible. Um, he doesn't seem to believe in new thought, but he admits it's possible and he can explain why it works. Uh, so if you're interested in why magic could work, uh, I would recommend that. Um, I don't know what to say about the art right. I guess I'm kind of, uh, out of touch with, uh, with artistic circles these days. Uh, everybody I look at is, is old, like, uh, Dali and so on. Um, but, uh, very interested in, uh, a, a Hungarian filmmaker, uh, uh, Belatar. Uh, he makes, uh, seven hour films, uh, black and white films, films. Uh, he has a film that, uh, is, uh, two and a half hours long and only has 17 scenes, 17 shots. Uh, so it's like the, uh, the Copa scene from, uh, Goodfellas, but, uh, over and over again. Um, that's, that's an area I'm interested in exploring. I don't know if it's, uh, art right. Uh, I think, uh, I think uh, Mr. Tarr is uh, very much a leftist, but uh, as we've seen before, uh, art tends to go in its own I direction. I guess the kind of explanation is uh, it used to be like maybe five to ten years ago, everything was overtly political and there has been this very positive shift of uh, people sort of have gotten jaded and cynical about politics and focusing more on creative endeavors, which is good. Oh, yeah, that's uh, that's good. Um, don't offhand think of anything... It seems very positive along along the lines of an alternative uh, form of art. Uh, you know, the, the thing you know, you look at uh, 
at these movies that uh, come out these days and they all seem to suck. And uh, uh, I think people are becoming increasingly aware of that. Uh, there's whole genres of uh, YouTube and uh, so on, uh, people A-logging all this, this Hollywood crap. Uh, <clears throat> and it doesn't, uh, you know, contrary to what the libertarians would tell us, it's not about uh, get woke, go broke, because they don't go broke. Uh, they have unlimited sources of money, as uh, as the uh, social credit people would uh, would tell us. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. like I mean that's a whole other tangent, but I think that's interesting. Is like go woke, go broke. I think for the right wing, it's a total cope. But this kind yeah. of this whole sort of change in the economic system, relating to kind of like talked about social credit, where profit, where it's sort of like like the whole capitalism versus socialism thing in both sides, like the, the, the Reaganites versus like the Bernie, Bernie people. And it's like, they're stuck in that old dichotomy. There's this thing where like, it's not even like profits are not even everything where they just like the government, it's sort of like the federal reserve prints all this money and then they use it to like prop up the stock markets of like a handful of like mega corporations. Yeah. Well, expect, expecting, you know, Hollywood to give people what they want is like expecting the political system to give people what they want. Right, right. You know, I mean, you, you got the Democrats and Republicans and, and you've got the same Hollywood crap. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll just shove it out. And as long as people, somebody is watching it. I mean, you know, what somebody said was, you know, it's not supposed to be for you legacy, uh, white people. You know, this is, this is the crap they're, they're spewing out for the future. Uh, multi-culti America. Right, right. You know, this, this stuff is going to make profits in the future. Um, which is interesting. Uh, <clears throat> you know, that's what Lucille Ball said about, uh, Star Trek. You know how Star Trek got made? Uh, the, uh, Paramount Pictures bought Desi Lu. And, uh, that meant that Lucille Ball, you know, Lucy, you know, I love Lucy. Right, right. Lucy, uh, was now on the board of directors of Paramount. And, uh, she was a very, she liked to keep her, uh, her nose in things. So, uh, she would attend meetings all the time and so on. She was a real pain in the neck. And, uh, Gene Roddenberry was, uh, pitching Star Trek, uh, finally to Paramount after everyone else had turned him down. And, uh, nobody wanted to make an expensive sci-fi thing because sci-fi was just for kids and so on. And in the back of the room, this, uh, this, uh, whiskey cigarette voice said, this will make millions in syndication. Because Lucille Ball knew that syndication was where you made money, as in I Love Lucy, which I think is still seen in syndication. Uh, and that's how Star Trek got made. So these, uh, these people, uh, they know what they're doing. So, uh, they're, they're making movies that, uh, that the, the yeah, it's either the, the monetary policy angle or they're hedging on, they're hedging, making a hedge on future change. Yeah. Yeah. They're making movies for the, uh, the future brown people who will watch anything. As long as there are lots of explosions and things, they're, they're happy. We're at the end of the show. Uh, James Ooh. O'Mara, uh, thank you so much for being on. Uh, check out, check out his book, Mysticism After Modernism. You would be well advised to do that. And I think, uh, you will. Well, where's the best place to find it? Amazon uh, or directly well, to Manic Press? It is on Amazon. Uh, go to countercurrents and uh, countercurrents.com. And on the side there, you'll see, uh, an array of books and, uh, they do uh, sell it through there. Um, and, uh, it'll also have the, it'll show you the website for, uh, for Amazon, for Barnes and Noble and for Manticore Press. 
So you can get it uh, anywhere you want. I'm sure our friends in Australia will want to get it from Australia, from Antipor. Ant- 